You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It's Monday, May 18th. We've got Ed and Ash standing by. They're going to give you their analysis of what's going on. But first, the biggest funds in the world on Friday released their 13 Fs, revealing their holdings as well as their appetite for risk. Let's take a look. The Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund has been hunting for bargains. First quarter, it aimed at many of the assets that have been hit hardest by the pandemic. Airfare, hotels, energy, concerts, even cruise liners. It bought Hotel Marriott International. It bought Canadian oil sands giant Suncor Energy. It bought Boeing. It bought Live Nation. It's already disclosed its stake in Carnival Cruises. The Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund seems determined not to let a crisis go to waste. Likewise, Carl Icahn has been piling into beaten down stocks as well. He bought some Newell brands. He bought Hertz Global Holdings as it's on the brink of bankruptcy. He did some double dipping at Occidental Petroleum as well. Delic U.S. Holdings, another oil company. Interestingly, Icon's 13F reported no notable sales, indicating that for Icon, now is not the time for conservatism. He's saying, I want to put capital to work now. But Warren Buffett is doing the exact opposite. He revealed in Berkshire's 13F that he's completely liquidated his stake in Travelers and Phillips 66. He sold some General Motors and J.P. Morgan. He also trimmed a very small amount of Amazon as well. But the main story is that Buffett sold 84% of Berkshire's stake in Goldman Sachs. And this is very interesting because in 2008, Warren Buffett famously recapitalized Goldman with $5 billion of preferred stock as well as some warrants on top. So in the last crisis, the Oracle of Omaha put money into Goldman. And now in this crisis, he's taking money out of Goldman. And this is very interesting for two reasons. First, it's a rebuttal to the off-sided refrain that you know, banks are healthier, they're better capitalized, the risk has been moved off their balance sheets to hedge funds and market makers. It's very clear that Warren Buffett is not fully convinced by this argument. Secondly, Goldman as an investment bank seemed better prepared to weather the storm than uh, consumer banks, which about a month ago released some loan loss reserves that had analysts reeling. Interestingly, Buffett did not touch Berkshire's share in Wells Fargo and actually increased its share of PNC Financial, although this could have something to do with PNC's pending sale of its massive stake in BlackRock. But more telling than what Buffett sold is what he bought, which, other than PNC Financial, is nothing. So once again with Warren Buffett, we have the dog that didn't bark phenomenon. Zooming out, looking at the ETF landscape, it looks like risk off is the dominant attitude among 13F filers with massive inflows into investment-grade corporate credit, short-duration treasuries, uh, the NASDAQ because of tech, obviously, uh, precious metals as well, with gold today just backing off a seven-year high. So certainly a lot to think about. Uh, to make sense of it all, we have our senior editor, Ash Bennington, with our managing editor, Ed Harrison. I know they have a lot of thoughts about Jay Powell's uh, interview on 60 Minutes. Um, I can't wait to hear what they have to say. Guys, take it away. 
Thanks, Jack. We're going to have more to say here about banks shortly. It's Monday, May 18, 2020. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined by Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Welcome, Ed. Good to talk to you, Ash. Wild day in U.S. equity markets, Ed. What are you thinking? Yeah, I'm thinking uh, when Powell comes out and says you could have uh, 25 or 30 percent unemployment, it is quite a um, an interesting thing when markets are up five uh, percent across the board. It's a day of many contrasts, isn't it? It really is. Uh, it, it tells you that markets want to fly. I, I think that they took the very positive sides of what Powell had to say. I, I'm actually looking at a tweet uh, just as we got on air here. I was looking at a tweet from Danielle DiMartino Booth, and here she says, in a part of the interview that did not air, Powell said the unemployment rate could go even higher where it could, quote, where it could easily be in the 20s or 30s, unquote, according to a CBS transcript. So, I mean, that's that's a pretty uh, astounding thing. I mean, I saw the interview and the, the take that I got was what he was saying is, look, uh, you guys got to throw some money at the problem. You got to you got to uh, give money out. It's all about the stimulus. We're going to do everything that we can, anything that it, that it takes. You guys are going to do anything it takes. And so the market's going with that uh, rationale and, and rallying. It was interesting. Sam Bell, who's a Fed watcher. He had this uh, this uh, this tweet which showed uh, Jay Powell as the character from Say Anything, you know, who has the boombox outside. And yeah. instead, and and what he's saying is, send money to the states, send money to businesses, send money to households. That's that's what Jay Powell was saying. And so the markets are like, that's good. We're gonna get some stimulus. Let's rally. Yeah, it reminds me. It's almost like the mirror image of the Andrew Mellon speech, right? Liquidate banks, liquidate labor, liquidate capital. It's the flip side of that. It's the flip side of the coin. Before we go exactly. too deep here, let's do a quick update on what happened in U.S. equity markets today. Uh, we had the S&P close at the 29.53 level. Uh, that's 20 points higher than that key Fibonacci retracement level of 61.8% uh, that had provided so much resistance in the last weeks and months. Uh, and, um, you know, we're up... Um, you know, we're up 3.1% on the day on the S&P, 3.85% on the Dow uh, to the 24,597 level on the Dow. And uh, Russell uh, 2000 went meteoric, up 6.2%. Uh, right, yeah. And European uh, shares were up as well, 5% across the board in Europe on the day. So it was a very big day. Obviously, there was, as you uh, talked to me earlier uh, before we got on air, there was the uh, the trial the vaccine uh, that seems promising. Uh, I just think that people are like, uh, look, you know, uh, we've gotten all the bad news. Th there's good news. Uh, we're going to get the stimulus. You know, the bottom, we, we have a, a security safety net there. Uh, don't don't forget, we also got uh, the, the Franco-German pact in Europe on top of that. Yeah. So uh, we, we got a trifecta of good news uh, on the coronavirus front, on the U.S. stimulus front. And we got good news on the European stimulus front. So on all three fronts, we got something positive. Right. But, you know, the flip side of that coin, again, uh, before we get into Europe too deeply, uh, look, Jay Powell had some things to say in that 60 Minutes interview. I watched it. I thought it was incredibly compelling television. Look, you know, uh, people I've sort of heard dismiss, well, that was just what he said on 60 Minutes. Here's the reality. More people know uh, 60 Minutes than, uh, than just about any other show in America, um, you know, he did an interview with uh, Adam Posen, 
uh, a couple of days ago on last Wednesday, I believe, who has just been on our platform with uh, Pedro de Costa. It's a great interview. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Um, but the reality is uh, really wonky content is limited to guys like you and me. These are the people who are watching it. When he speaks on 60 Minutes, he's speaking to the country. And I imagine he must be choosing his words with care. Uh, and some of the words he chose I thought were very interesting. He talked about longer run damage to the economy. He talked about skills atrophy. He talked about losing uh, contact with the workforce, meaning uh, that a lot of people are having their their skills, their ability to actually get a job uh, impaired. These are some really uh, some really grim things. He talked about insolvency. He talked about small and medium sized uh, businesses. He talked about supporting them for the next three to six months to make sure that we didn't have a, a insolvency crisis in the United States among small and medium sized enterprises, which, as uh, the chairman pointed out, are one of the key engines that drive job growth in the United States. Um, you know, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, you know, he said uh, the other thing that I thought was really sort of engaging was where, you know, he was asked if they were close to uh, if they'd done all they could. And uh, and he said, quote, we're not out of ammunition by a long shot. Quote, there's really no limit to what we can do with these lending programs. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if I could sum up what you're saying, uh, you're saying that it was a lot more downbeat than markets would have you believe. He was saying a lot of like there are a lot of bad scenarios out there. So if you don't get the stimulus that they're talking about from the fiscal side at a minimum, uh, the, the the feds giving to the states, giving to businesses, giving to individuals, then there's some pretty bad outcomes from that. That's what I took away from it. But you know the markets are rallying on this. And let me just say one thing about this that is a bugbear because you. Uh, talked about the Pedro da Costa interview with Adam Posen. Great interview. You said yes, 100%. But you know, people on the platform, they weren't understanding what was going on there because of the politics. Politics, playing politics loses you money. You have to take a look at what people are saying in terms of is this likely to happen? When we look at the, the wide variety of outcomes that could happen, policy choices now are driving things forward. The Fed, we're talking about, and we're talking about also what's going on in Europe. We'll get to that in a little bit. But Mike Novogratz, perfect example today, came on the platform, great interview with regard to a lot of different things in terms of his thinking about what's going to happen with taxes going up if the Democrats get into office, what's going to happen to Google, Facebook in terms of regulation if the Democrats get into office. And yet a lot of people were thinking, this guy's anti-Trump. Uh, I don't get it. I mean, he was telling you point blank that uh, I'm telling you taxes are going to go up and that Facebook and, and Google are going to get harmed. And I'm telling you that as someone who's center left because I'm not playing politics. Yet people are saying he was playing politics. That's what loses you money when you start thinking in that way. You have to listen to what people are saying and, and come away with a understanding of where these things are headed. Yeah, I, I don't really think there's anything much for me to add to that, except to say that, um, you know, we all uh, we're all here to learn uh, from different perspectives, I think. And uh, at least I am. I can only speak for myself, I guess, in that regard. Uh, but for me, I'm, I'm most interested in the arguments and whether it comes from the left or it comes from the right. If it helps uh, build a framework that allows me to understand markets better and what's happening in the economy, that's something I'm interested in hearing about. Exactly. And so, you know, I mean, it, it really rubs me the wrong way when I see comments about like that. Uh, because it shows people who are totally closed-minded, who aren't thinking outside the box. 
it's much easier to think outside the box if you're looking at another country. So let's look over at Europe from a, an American's perspective, looking over at Europe. Okay. So you look at this whole thing, what's going on in the in the European zone. What we now know is that France, both in terms of their trajectory from a debt to GDP, government debt to GDP level, and also in terms of the coronavirus is much more in line with the South. So suddenly we had a, a, a talking point where it was the South versus the North, where it was France choosing the South and then Germany hanging out with the North. Now we see that Merkel and, uh, and uh, uh, Macron have gotten together and they're saying, yes, uh, we, we're not going to let this uh, happen. We are going to come together. Maybe we'll even introduce Corona bonds, you know, if you can, if you can believe that. So suddenly there's a whole different dynamic there. The question we have to ask ourselves as investors, A, uh, is this for real? And then B, if it is for real, what's going to happen to asset markets as a result? I mean, the biggest thing for me from this is the spread between bunts and, and, and uh, U.S. Treasuries, because before it had been that bunts kept on getting bid uh, and, you know, treasuries were up here on a relative basis, but that's getting squeezed. I think that if this is for real, it's going to get squeezed even more. You're going to see a convergence of bunts and treasuries as a result of that. So that's my take. And I can say that because I'm not European. I'm not looking at it from a political perspective. I'm looking at it from a pure, you know, what are the probabilities perspective? Yeah, that's right. That's such an interesting point. And uh, I, my thinking was actually uh, almost identical to yours on this. We only discussed this briefly, but it's funny. That was almost exactly what I was thinking. I was sort of framing it as, uh, so it's $500 billion. Uh, that's the package that they're that they're agreeing upon. And uh, my question uh, to you was going to be, you know, $500 billion, is that a small drop in a very big bucket? Or is it the beginning of broader cooperation? Right. Yeah, so, I mean that is the question. Uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm doing RV live with Bill Campbell. He's uh, Jeff Gunlock's uh, guy over at Double Line who does uh, sort of uh, global uh, macro. And we were talking about this in our sort of our prep interview about what's going on in Europe. And that is the question: is uh, are they going to come together? And if they do, how do you play that from a fixed income asset allocation perspective? Because clearly, what you've seen. Uh, as a secondary outcome is a divergence between, say, Italy and Spain on the one hand and Germany on the other hand. Uh, if you take a look at sort of the better players, I think if you look at the periphery and you look at their debt to GDP levels and where they were trading before uh, we had the coronavirus, uh, the, the people who got into trouble like Ireland, like Spain, like uh, Portugal, Greece and Italy. Of those, I think that Ireland's already all played out. They're converged. They didn't diverge again. Spain is an interesting place because uh, Italy and Greece could still go the other way within the Eurozone, but Spain is the, the biggest beneficiary of any sort of convergence play that you could make from a fixed income perspective. That is, if bunts, uh, you know, sell off, Spain would converge and they would rally as a result. So I see that as a more compelling play within the Eurozone than, say, playing Greece or Italy versus uh, versus Germany. It'll be interesting to see what Bill Campbell has to say about that. Well, you know, I'm curious uh, to, to hear your take on this. So talking about those uh, about those spreads, about those yield divergences, 
When you see that 500 billion euro, 543 billion US dollar uh, package, does that suggest to you a number that is material? Or in your view, is that just a symbol of potential greater cooperation and therefore a bellwether of what may be to come? Yeah, I think it's the bellwether part. Yes. I think, you know, 500 billion is a big number. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not as big when you're talking about a collapse of 30 percent on an annualized basis for one quarter. And you're also looking at uh, a slow grind upwards. So I think that it just says that the Germans are now they're they're willing to make the compromise. You hear this from the likes of Wolfgang Schäuble, who is the head of the Bundestag there. So. There, there are lots of different voices that are the old guard that are telling you, yes, we Germans are willing to compromise here. Uh, it's, we're, we're taking the lead. It's actually the, the Swedes, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the, the Finns, it's the Dutch. They're the ones who are actually the holdouts here. But if we, the Germans, as a much bigger part of the economy, take the lead and we do it with the French, now we're back in business. We have the Franco-German alliance that built the Eurozone, that built the EU, and that's what we want to see. Yeah, you know, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a really interesting time and a really interesting question. Is it, in terms of a benchmark, quick and dirty understanding of the size of that package, uh, the total Eurozone GDP is roughly equal to the total U.S. GDP. So if you look at that number uh, in relation to the stimulus that we've had here in the United States, both from the Fed uh, and from congressional stimulus, it looks relatively small. Oh, yeah, definitely, without a doubt. And then you have to ask yourself the question, when you get beyond the first, say, six months, one year, and the eurozone's still in trouble and Italy has debt to GDP of 180 percent, what happens then, right? So that's why I think Spain's a better play, obviously, because I believe that the Spanish are in a position to converge and stay converged, whereas the Italians aren't necessarily in that same position. And it, interestingly, when you looked at how the markets were playing out earlier today, when you and I got up this morning, uh, it was about noon, one o'clock, uh, by the time uh, our day really started here, over there, and the European banks were selling off. I mean, the European bank index was showing levels of price to book that were lower than they were the great financial crisis, which says that they believe that they're going to be massive write downs, credit write downs at these banks, that they're not taking enough loan loss reserves. So that definitely speaks to the Italian banks. It speaks to banks like, uh, you know, uh, like Deutsche Bank, as an example. And you see a lot of banks across the world, even in the U.S., selling assets. I don't know if you saw that Bank of America. They put up their entire BlackRock uh, uh, distribution out uh, to sell. And as I understand it, the only reason they're doing this, they, they spun it pretty well, is to raise their, their Basel rating, their tier one capital, because they want to make sure that they have enough capital to withstand the onslaught that's about to come. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. The sale of BlackRock, uh, of a BlackRock stake, effectively just to bolster Teal-run capital. Uh, of course, you meant uh, PNC, uh, not Bank of America, but it's an incredible- That's right. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, let me just say before you, because I, I know you're going to get into Basel uh, at some point, uh, and, and I think you're really good at these explanations. I, I'm just looking at the Financial Times, and it's saying that PNC 
not Bank of America, as you were saying, they feared for the U.S. economy. That's what prompted their sale of the BlackRock stake. So that's not a bullish message, but that was completely overlooked in today's business. Yeah, it's an incredibly important story, as you point out. So now tell me a little bit about Basel. You were about to say about uh, the, the, the uh, I mean, because basically what's happening is, is PNC, they're going to be able to sell the BlackRock stake at a premium to what they bought it at. And that's going to increase their tier one capital. Uh, what is tier one capital? So tier one capital is one of a series of capital metrics that bank regulators look at when they examine the health and stability of a bank. Uh, this uh, came about the revision Basel III is the current uh, protocol. Uh, it came about in 2009, obviously after the great uh, global financial crisis. Uh, and it, uh, the, it was supposed to be fully implemented by 2015. They've kicked the can down the road a little bit. I think different countries have different national regulations. This is something that was uh, created by the uh, BIS or under BIS oversight. Uh, effectively, what it is, it's a measure of, uh, of, how much, uh, of how much cash, of how much assets uh, banks actually have to combat uh, the other side of the equation, which are risk-weighted assets. So you have uh, capital on the one hand and you have risk-weighted assets on the other. Risk-weighted assets are effectively uh, you know, anything from cash, which typically has a zero discount, or I should say, which always has a zero discount, uh, all the way to the riskiest securities, which can be discount uh, under some circumstances up to 100%. Uh, and tier one capital is generally uh, the, the most liquid measure of capital uh, that is generally looked at uh, in this context and the one that's watched at least most closely. Yeah, and you know, I think that it's somewhat controversial in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, when uh, Pedro was talking to Sheila Bear, she was saying, look, we should just look at uh, leverage ratios. Forget about all this tier one capital stuff because at the end of the day, a lot of these uh, these assets are, we don't know how risky they are. Uh, let's just take a look and see how levered up these companies are. That's a much better and much easier way to understand how risky they are as an institution. And that will, that will t take you forward in a much better way. But uh, bottom line, going back to the whole thing about European banks, is that European banks are trading at their lowest levels uh, on price to book, which is telling you that irrespective of whether you look at tier one, whether you look at absolute leverage ratios, that people do not believe that their book value is going to stay uh, at those levels because they're going to be taking tons of credit write downs. That's not a very positive message with regard to what's happening going forward. So, you know, you can talk about our being over the 61.8 Fibonacci from a momentum perspective, that's very bullish. But from a fundamental perspective, I still think that uh, there, are, there, there are roadblocks ahead, both in Europe and also in the United States. Yeah, we learned some of these lessons during the uh, global financial crisis, uh, this notion that, uh, that suddenly uh, balance sheets matter. Uh, and that it's, you know, you have the, the technical component on one hand, you have the, the flow transactions on the other. And then finally, you have the, the balance sheet component, which is how much debt do these uh, companies have? How much leverage uh, are they saddled with? And are they going to be able to service that debt when times get bad? And I think that's precisely the story um, that you were pointing to with the PNC uh, BlackRock stake. They didn't sell BlackRock because BlackRock became a bad investment. They they sold back BlackRock because they needed to be able to uh, enhance their own balance sheets and to increase their tier one capital. You know, it's funny you would say that they didn't sell it because it was a bad investment. It's like what you always say, whenever there is a liquidity crisis, right? 
Uh, yeah. That you sell what you can, not what you want to sell. Actually, you sell your best assets. You're selling the crown jewels in a way. So PNC, I mean, BlackRock is actually being, uh, the Fed is, 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 is tasking BlackRock with doing some of their uh, financial shenanigans. And, and, and PNC selling its stake because they, they're afraid of the economy. What does that say right there? That doesn't say that you know, the market should be rallying. Yeah, and the obvious metaphor for this is is gold. How gold often declines uh, during uh, periods where you expect it to rise because people are being forced to liquidate, precisely as you said, uh, the crown jewels of their portfolio uh, in order to make margin calls to shore up their other positions. So, I mean, m the bottom line for me is, is is that the news was a lot more mixed today than the markets would have you believe. But I think that you know we broke some good levels there on the markets and the upside momentum is there. And, and that's positive over the near term for the markets. Uh, we're coming out of this lockdown now. Uh, we're going to see the economy pick up. So there's a bit of a tailwind with regard to the real economy as well as uh, the momentum within the financial economy. Yeah, and talking of uh, tailwinds, one quote that I wanted to get in before we left, the single most interesting quote to me uh, from the interview that Jay Powell did was, he was asked this question, quote, fair to say you flooded the system with money. And his response was, yes, we did. Yes. I, I thought that was so interesting because that's an opportunity where any Fed chair who wants to sort of game the question a little can begin with a, <laughs> You know, the, 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 the language that Chairman Yellen uh, always began, which was, was, you know, well, consistent with the statutory mandate of the Federal Reserve. He said, no. He said, yes, we did. He just he's came a plain out. Spoken guy. He's, he's not like talking gobbledygook like Alan Greenspan. He's just telling it to you uh, straight out. Uh, did you catch the part where they asked him about uh, printing money? Like, if, are you printing money? And, and he said, well, Yes, effectively we are. We're not actually printing the money. We also can do that, but we're creating digital money. And then he went through the whole process. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I thought so too. I thought he was a, a very compelling interview. I think you're right. He's a very plain spoken guy. I think that um, that uh, people who are not obsessively watching financial markets the way we did probably saw that interview and got a great sense of, uh, of, of actually what's happening, whether you agree or whether you disagree. I think it's a good thing for democracy uh, and a good thing for the country that we have someone like uh, Jay Powell who's going on uh, 60 Minutes and telling the story to the American people like it is. Well said, Ash. Uh, and you know, as always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you at these times. I mean, very confounding markets today, but ultimately uh, the momentum is higher at this point in time and uh, we'll just have to see how that works out over the long term. Indeed we will, and we will be here to do that. Thanks for joining us, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.